0: You're listening to Highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with David Fenton, founder of Fenton, an agency to create communications campaigns for the environment, public health, and human rights. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Well, my first professor of public relations was a very amazing activist of the 60s named Abby Hoffman, who most young people today have not heard of until I say, did you see the Netflix movie The Trial of the Chicago 7? And people say, yes, I said, Sasha Baron Cohn, he played Abby. And he really played Abby. I mean, he was Abby in that movie. So Abby was a master at propagating myths in the service of activism. And here's what I mean by myths. So Abby and a couple of friends started this group they called the Youth International Party which some people may have known as the Yippies. And it was just Abby and like three friends. And yet he would get the New York Times and the Network Evening News to report, today the Youth International Party said or did. And I'd be like, how did he do that? It's only him and three friends. (laughs) And he did all this in the service of ending segregation in the South and ending the war in Vietnam, legalizing drugs, et cetera. So he was a master at this. So yeah, I had great teachers, actually. And speaking of inspirational figures, I think of Nelson Mandela, who you knew. A saint. Yeah, the only saint I've ever met, actually. Yeah, Nelson Mandela. Wow. Imagine after 27 years in prison, he had no anger. He had completely transcended anger. Totally. He had nothing but heart. I don't know how he did that. He was intent on healing and unity, and he accomplished a lot of that. It is very remarkable. I once went to a meeting that he had. I was in South Africa, and it was with some of his former jailers. And they were meeting with Mandela's architect. He was building a house in the suburbs of Johannesburg, and he wanted it to be an exact replica of a house he lived in on the grounds of Pollsmoor Prisoners in Johannesburg. I think it's a Johannesburg. Maybe that was near Cape Town. So he gathered his former guards with the architect, and they were going over a model of the house to get it exactly right. And they were laughing and joking and backslapping and hugging. And I'm like, what? These are the people that jailed him. The activists really need to pay attention to mass awareness. Political change is a function of gaining political power through mass awareness, mass mobilization, and mass unification. Yeah, I mean, when I say make America great again, everybody watching this probably cringes, and I do too. But we have to learn from that. That is actually how the brain works. It works through being exposed to the repetition of simple, easy to understand messages that have an emotional and moral aspect. That's how the brain learns. It doesn't learn from facts. It doesn't learn from figures. It doesn't learn from policy pronouncements. And it certainly doesn't learn from complexity. And how the brain learns is how public opinion learns. It's how public opinion changes. So we need to get out of our bubbles, of course. So it kind of goes like this. The the linguists and the cognitive scientists have established that as you're exposed to language from childhood and over your lifetime, it forms literal circuits in your brain. They call them frames. So in order to communicate successfully with people, the best way is to use language that activates existing frames. So for example, when I say we need to get to net zero by 2050, nobody knows what I'm talking about. There's no existing. Existing circuitry to process that language. Now, If I say, we have to stop pollution because pollution is heating the planet, and we've formed a blanket of pollution around the earth that is trapping heat that used to go back out to space, and then everybody knows what I'm talking about because they know what pollution is. That's an existing mental frame. And by the way, no one will defend pollution. You won't find anyone that thinks pollution is a good thing. So it's a universally negative frame in all languages. And then when I say it's like a blanket around the earth, there's another existing mental frame. Everybody knows what a blanket is and how it works. It traps your body heat so you don't get cold. So that's what we're doing to the earth. And yes, all that trapped heat energy on earth has to go somewhere. So it goes to create stronger storms and droughts and floods and melts the ice. But we don't use language and imagery and metaphor like that. Now, meanwhile, the activist community is in a battle to the death with the fossil fuel industry and their paid political prostitute agents. And those people go to business school and they study marketing science and cognitive science. And they've had to, in most cases, use those skills to advance their careers. They've had to sell products and services to get ahead, most of them, not the financial industry. And so they have a natural orientation to dominate discussions with effective, sticky, memorable language and imagery. And they also know that they have to ensure that their messages and imagery get out there and actually that they have to get the population exposed to that. So they're very focused on propaganda. So we're in a propaganda war. And as my friend, Dr. Anthony Leiserowitz at the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication likes to say, this is a propaganda war, but here's the problem. Only one side's on the battlefield. We largely are not. We have often, you could say, people that study the humanities, the law, and the sciences, as opposed to people who go to business school, they tend to be inculcated with the view that the great linguist George Lakoff calls the enlightenment fallacy. That is, that if you have a great idea for a policy or a technology, that will magically sell and replicate itself because of its sheer internal brilliance and what goes with that attitude is a subconscious disdain for selling things that's dirty and manipulative and beneath us and we don't have to do it because our ideas are so intrinsically brilliant this is the way you know for example engineers think so meanwhile in the scientific community you know those people are taught that complexity is how you get ahead and they're also taught that simplification Is a form of bastardization. It's not accurate to simplify because it doesn't capture nuance and complexity. So, all these factors combined are why we're in this boat, I would say. But the good news is it's really fixable. We now have the data. We know how to talk about climate change for different audiences. We know who's good at it, who's effective spokespeople. We know what language works, we know what imagery works. So, As we get this information and knowledge into more hands, hopefully this will start to change and people will use it and it'll get funded more because it is a solvable problem. People ask me all the time, David, you've worked on this end of the world stuff, climate change since 1990, and I have. So how do you stay optimistic? So here's my answer. I have a lot of faith in the public that if you get them good, accurate information in digestible and proper forms, that they're going to do the right thing. They're not going to say, go ahead, destroy my house, ruin my children's future, make the price of food go out of control, collapse the insurance markets, you know, make it impossible for me to go outside because of wildfire smoke. They're not going to say that when they know, but they don't know enough about it yet. And the media isn't helping because the TV media in our backwards country almost never tells people what's causing all this extreme weather. So as we work on these things, the public will wake up There's no question about it, but we could speed it up. So what I hope is that the scientists and the activist community can pay as much attention to cognitive science as they do to climate science, and then we'll get somewhere. Also, as for sacrifice, we always have to be very careful If you only talk about how bad things are going to be, people's nervous systems shut down. And it's very hard for them to contemplate this. You know, some psychologists have theorized that when we think about destruction from climate change, it goes through similar mental circuits as when we think about death and dying. And who wants to think about that, right? Only some, you know, high-end Buddhist meditators. So we have to show people that this is a solvable problem. We have to show a lot of hope, but we can't only show hope because we're in an urgent situation. So we have to balance hope, I would say mostly hope, with some fear and urgency some great friends of mine have said, climate change is actually a crime scene. It is not your fault. These oil, coal, and gas executives have known for 50 years what they're doing to us, and they have lied about it and corrupted the political process. It's their fault. It's the fault of these big polluters. And that's the way we should talk about this. The Yale figures show that two-thirds of Americans, and I'm sure this is true in many other countries, report that they rarely or never hear anyone talking about climate change or see it in the media, rarely or never. So how are you supposed to solve a problem no one's talking about? So we need to make a priority of reaching the majority of the public in a hurry. And if we do that, we'll change the political will and the political dynamic, and we'll have a mass movement that can overcome the corruption of the fossil fuel industry. So that's why I'm optimistic, because I'm sure that's going to happen, but we need to make it happen in time. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.